Welcome to the Data Pulse. I'm your host, Anika. In this podcast, I dive into the growing role that data science plays in the latest biomedical innovations. Join me as I go behind the scenes and check the pulse with domain experts and rising stars who are leading advances in data-driven human health. I'm here today with Dr. Lily Peng, who is a product manager at Google Health, leading a team at the intersection of deep learning and medicine. Lily is a physician scientist who works on applications of deep learning to increase the availability and accuracy of care. Some of her team's recent work includes building models to detect diabetic eye disease, predict cardiovascular health factors from retinal images, detect breast cancer and lung cancer from screening scans. Before Google, Lily was a product manager at Doximity and a co-founder of Nano Precision Medical, a drug delivery device startup. She holds a BS with honors and distinction in chemical engineering from Stanford University and an MD-PhD in bioengineering from the University of California, San Francisco. Lily, it's fantastic to have you here with me today. Hey, Anika. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So I'd love to start by talking a little bit about your background. You hold an MD-PhD and so clearly have both medical and scientific chops. How does the product management role really enable you to effectively use your training to address problems of real need? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think the so let's split up the MD PhD into two parts. So I think obviously the MD is, you know, learning about how to be a doctor, how to care for patients, how to interact with patients. Um and the PhD really, in my opinion, is learning about how to fail. <laughs> so <laughs> um, a PM in medicine, right, uh, in, in healthcare, you think about a product manager, it's really about building products for doctors and patients. So the MD really helps me represent um, my, our users. And the PhD really helps when things don't go as planned, which is all the time. Uh, and especially <laughs> when you're in the business of translational research, uh, one of the painful, but also really amazing things is that you will go into a research uh, question uh, with a certain level of assumptions, and then you find out how wrong you are as you kind of do the research. So um, I think this translational medicine piece uh, and the MD-PhD training really, really go together pretty well. Uh, And I've seen other people get the same types of training um, in in not formal, right? So not necessarily an MD-PhD, but they learn about the user and then they learn how to fail. And those folks tend to also do really well in product management in this area. That's a, a very neat way you've described of being able to combine both of these components where you understand the world and the people that you're trying to help, but you also understand how much uncertainty and lack of predictability there often can be, especially when working in medicine. Yeah. What brought you specifically to the world of imaging-based medical diagnostics? And we mentioned how you work in deep learning. Why did you choose that as the toolkit of choice? Yeah, so uh, this actually started out as a 20% project when I was working in Google search. Um, so I wish I could say I had this grand master plan. I saw, you know, the light and I walked toward it. But the reality is, you know, uh, I was pretty lucky. Uh, during that time, deep learning was shown to be capable of 
just an incredible performance, right? So on par uh, or exceeding that of humans um, and just very efficient at the task of image classification. Uh, so I would refer you to the ImageNet competitions, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, it, we just thought, hey, if deep learning could be used to distinguish between cats and dogs, why not the different kinds of medical images? And I think one of the reasons that need really also resonated with me was, um, you know, in medical training, understanding that the supply of healthcare was just so low globally anyway, um, and how much demand there was for this, for this type of care and thinking, wow, you know, if you can uh, automate or help assist in automating some of the routine tasks, uh, you could really stretch that supply to meet more of the demand. Um, so I think, you know, there was definitely one of those oh, this is super cool. Uh, and it immediately resonated. And I think that the medical training really helped me get that instinct uh, pretty pretty early on. Yeah, you, you mentioned the need being a key driver. That reminds me of one of those famous sayings that scarcity is the mother of innovation uh, or something like that. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, when we're constrained is when we're really pushed to identify new new solutions, and especially when there is a great desire and need for it. So amongst other projects that you've worked on that have really moved the needle, you spearheaded the pioneering efforts in 2016 of predicting diabetic retinopathy from retinal fundus images. Could you talk a little bit about what diabetic retinopathy is and how you came up with the hypothesis that diagnosing this specific effect of diabetes could be possible from just images of the eye? Yeah, so um, diabetic retinopathy, which is um, a tongue twister, which we call DR. So DR is a complication of diabetes, and it causes a vision loss, really, if not caught uh, early enough. So doctors think about how do we screen and catch disease while it's still asymptomatic. Uh, and we do this by taking a picture of the back of the eye, uh, and it, usually this requires a special, a special camera. And then looking for little lesions like microaneurysms, hemorrhages, just you know, it's a little bit like where's Waldo, except Waldo's are little little bleeds in the eye. Um, and it's a less fun version of it. Oh, uh, and, <laughs> uh, and it's really not a new idea here. Because um, as I mentioned, image uh, classification of uh, even of DR was a problem that lots of vision people were already working on, uh, not necessarily with deep learning, but with other types of techniques. Um, we were the, amongst the first to apply deep learning on um, to use it, but we... Um, we, we were not the ones that identified this as a problem. I think this was a problem that uh, lots of folks had tried to figure out, how do we scale this particular task? Um, and so we had the benefit of seeing what other folks had tried in the area and being able to uh, iterate on that. Got it. I guess the question even that you were specifically asking was not just to identify some of these the patches in the images, but it's really what are the implications of that? I know you've talked in the past about the importance of actionability of data. How did you decide what to look for using that as a guiding principle? Yeah, so I think um, we generally think about um, problems in healthcare that are actually well-defined. Uh, so I wish we could say that we're really, really innovative in every way. And I, I don't think that that's true. I think what we tend to do is look at problems that the medical uh, community has already pointed out as problems and have tried various different ways of solving that problem. Um, and so like, you know, with diabetic retinopathy, for example, there are decades of science that um, 
that occurred before even screening programs showed up, right? We had to figure out how to diagnose it uh, reliably. We had to show that, you know, at each level of severity confers with it a certain level of risk for vision loss down the road. And that all that work had been done already, which made it kind of a really good problem for us to Mm -hmm. try to iterate on um, and say, hey, you know, the problem statement is pretty clear. How we grade the disease has already been standardized. And then the treatment of what we do if we found someone who is ill um, was also already figured out. And so then we could go in and help with a very specific task and, and know that if we scaled that task, we would be able to have a big impact. Um, and so, you know, diabetic retinopathy, again, uh, we had good grading guidelines um, on it, although, you know, the reproducibility of those guidelines we found later on was a little more challenging, but at least we had agreement. Uh, there was a lot of cost-effectiveness studies that had been done on this particular type of screening and was recommended. So like the NHS, for example, in the UK has a um, national screening program around this. So does the government of Thailand, et cetera. Um, and so these are things that other folks already figured out. And, and we really do stand on the shoulder of giants uh, for to, to do this work. Absolutely. So having a well-defined task and context in which you're inserting the deep learning approaches is, is really key. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you describe the iterative process that you went through to actually reach the final model that was reported in the JAMA paper? Yeah, that was one of the most humbling experiences that I've gone through because we went into that problem thinking, well, we've got grading guidelines, we've got ML, uh, and let's just grade a few pictures, throw it in a neural net, and you know, voila, you got a you got a model, right? It's magic. <laughs> um, but what we found out was that you know we actually had to do a lot of guideline iteration um, because the way that human beings interpreted guidelines was very variable. So we actually, in some ways, had to train um, graders to get them, you know, grading on the same kind type of guideline, uh, and so you know, and, and then from there, we had to do lots of labeling, right? So getting uh, physicians to give in, give their diagnoses, and then also monitor the quality of the grading. So we would overgrade, like grade pictures multiple times, see what levels of agreement that we're seeing. And, um, you know, surprise, surprise, there was a lot of disagreement amongst doctors, uh, especially for borderline cases that are that was hard to define. Um, mm-hmm. So we found that the grading guidelines and then the the quality of the grading that stemmed from the guidelines to be really critical in solving this um, this problem. And then, you know, training the model, I think, yes, I think at that point was still challenging. But, you know, nowadays, uh, there are so many different frameworks that you could use to, to do this. Um, the training of the models does does not seem to be the barrier to entry here, right? Uh, it's something that lots of folks could do once you get the images and you get the labels and and then you can do that. And then, um, so, so, you know, at, at first we actually had to, um, you know, we, we use one version of the grading guidelines and then it was super unclear. And so we had to go and do multiple versions and we had to do version control of the different type of guidelines that were, that were used. Oh, wow. Um, so that, that was one part of the challenging uh, part. And then the other one was making sure that the models generalized beyond, you know, the, the training set. And so finding additional um, uh, types of uh, data sets and making sure that they generalize to like a population that was unseen was also another, another big challenge. Right. Because one of the goals is actually to be able to deploy this across populations, around the world. And that's something I would want to get to in a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
Relatedly, when you do publish such a model, clearly it has broad-ranging medical implications. And especially if you're claiming that you can actually make a clinical decision as a result of this diagnosis. How did you think about enabling interpretability of the models and predominantly in the medical context that you were hoping to deploy them? Uh, yes. So that is one of the improvements we made since the JAMA paper. So when we did the JAMA paper, when we were first writing it, um, one of the one of the things that we really wanted to get to was interpret- interpretability. Uh, and and uh, we weren't able to get that with that paper. But the next um, iterations, we started thinking, okay, um, what are sort of the attention techniques or saliency mapping techniques that can really get to give um, providers, primary care providers, uh, a sense of trust in the system, that the system is looking at the right lesions. Um, and also, if we're making new predictions that, you know, human beings don't normally make, or at least doctors don't normally make, um, we are able to explain the lesions or the uh, uh, features that the model is looking at, and it's not just cheating, right? So that's the biggest thing is like, you know, <laughs> looking after your models, make sure they're not memorizing things. Right. And so that's been that's been one of the bigger work work streams going going forward since the JAMA paper. Yeah, got it. Really picking apart the the importance of features is is key. Yeah. So now nowadays the saliency mapping and attention modeling they that actually becomes another part of our modeling work already. Like a kind of a natural like we we build a model and then we want to know what it's looking at. It's coupled, I think, to a certain extent. <laughs> and we've definitely seen cases where we've seen an AUC of like. 1.0 or like 0.99 super high and you know we've now taught been taught ourselves to be extremely skeptical of high AUCs right and even in papers and other places where they give an I uh, give an AUC but no confidence interval right. right or there is a confidence interval uh and it's you know and it's super tight but it's like your your n is super low right uh and it's very clear that something's overfitting so now now we, when we see an AUC of you know really like 0.99, we get we get really suspicious. Yeah, definitely. Could you expand a bit on the saliency maps that, that you've used and maybe provide an example of one of the features that has come out as important as a result? Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll probably refer you to some of the, the newer work. So, so in the older work, right, what we did with saliency mapping um, and, and attention models is we, we were able to confirm that, that the lesions that were used to predict you know, mild retinopathy or moderate or whatever were the same lesions that were that were part of the grading the grading guidelines. So that gave us a, a lot of um, comfort that the model was doing what it was supposed to on the disease that it was trained to predict. I think from then on, we started pre- started trying to predict things that were not as obvious on a two D photo, but maybe if you had a three D scan of the eye um, or some other ancillary information, you were able to um, kind of uh, kind of get that same output from a 2D image, right? So, so one of the things that we call uh, that we've done uh, since then would be what we call like 3D DME, right? Which is from a 2D image, figure out if there's swelling in the macula. And usually, what you need to do is take a 3D scan of that macula to see whether or not you know there's fluid uh, and that the macula is popping up uh, and out at you. Or hmm. in um, another way of doing it would be doing stereoscopic photographs to see if you know something is bulging out in the in the macula. And so what we did was we actually 
got the labels from the OCT, which is the 3D scan, and used that as the ground truth, uh, and then trained uh, the model uh, to look at the 2D images. And we found that the, the model actually outperformed uh, humans on trying to make a call of whether or not on 3D, you know, the, the macula would be swelling. Uh, and then the other thing that we did was then from there do the do the saliency mapping. And we we're like, okay, let's make sure that the model is not cheating and looking at other parts of the um, of the of the picture. And lo and you know, of course, it's the the mapping is around the macula, right? It's it's looking at some sort of shadow or something uh, around the macula, uh, and so hmm. you get a sense that it is looking, it is trying to get that information from the right anatomic region. It's just seeing additional things. There's just additional patterns in the pixelation that clues the model in to that this is elevated even on a 2d image um, so that's been one of the places where uh, we we've seen the explanation uh, explainability of of models uh, work out pretty well that's fascinating that you can actually infer some features that are only really understandable at the 3d level from from 2d yeah, but you you can see that right in, in human beings when you look at a regular consumer image, right? You can kind of get a sense of okay, this is three D, this is you know popping up in the foreground. So I think in retrospect we were like, yeah, it totally makes sense, right? It's just that human beings aren't super used to looking at pictures of maculas, um, right? And so <laughs> in, yeah, in retrospect we're like, uh, of course. But then when we found it, it was uh, it was a very interesting um, finding, right? So. Stepping back a little bit and thinking about your typical approach, how do you think about framing a new medical problem in a way that's tractable by some of the deep learning approaches that your team uses? Or even flipped, how do you develop appropriate models in healthcare? So we usually think about two considerations when we're picking uh, new problems. And the first one is a clinical problem, a clinical consideration, and the, the second one is a technical consideration. So on the clinical side, we think, is this really a useful problem to solve? And this gets to what you were uh, alluding to before. Is this, will this be used in patient care if we were able to solve this problem? Uh, and under what time frame? And then also, do experts agree on the classification and diagnostic guidelines? And then on the technical side, um, you know, we think, is this the right task for us to use deep learning on, or is there another type of technique we should be thinking about? So deep learning is best for tasks that have been done, you know, tens of thousands of times. Uh, and so if you're, you're thinking this is not a very high volume task, this, you know, deep learning may not be the best hammer for, for that nail. Mm -hmm. It's also great when you have an objective ground truth, uh, for the outcome you want to predict, right? So if you're trying to right. predict, uh, outcome with a lot of uncertainty, it'll be real, it'll be hard for us to do. Um, and then, and, and we do also think about, you know, is it possible to get data diversity, right? So is this a population where we really think that it, it's only, you know, we, there are only a small number of folks or a small number of types of populations that are, that, um, you know, even have this problem. And and whether or not we can find other places where this that they have the same problem, and then you can show generalizability across um, across multiple uh, domains. And I think part of this is the protocols that are required, right? Um, if you don't have, if the screening protocols are really different from place to place, you're not necessarily going to have the best uh, time at trying to solve this problem. 
And I think the last part we talked about too was explainability is, okay, assuming that we can, you know, solve this problem, let's actually also make sure that we try to explain the um, prediction so that ultimately this gains trust, not only with the researchers, but also with um, doctors that eventually may have to use this tool. Absolutely. I want to switch gears a little bit to a topic that you've talked about before, and we alluded to previously in this conversation, and this is about accessibility of machine learning-led diagnostics in rural and low-resource communities. What do you think it'll take technologically or culturally or something else to enable widespread access in areas that are traditionally tougher to reach? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think this is one of the things that we're grappling with right now. Um, you know, what we found so far is uh, one of the most important things is local deployment partners and local champions. Um, I think uh, where you there are so many things that you don't know until you are in the care setting. And so having folks that, you know, day in, day out are in that community and work in that patient population, I think is really important. And then having uh, those folks be actually champions for the technology, because you are actually helping them solve something in some way. I, and I do use the word champions, like in a very like specific way, because I don't want people like, I think it's not going to be as helpful if there are people who are like, oh, you know, okay, yeah, this seems cool. Right. I think hmm. that level of enthusiasm is actually required um, and uh, for, for the deployment to work out well. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, that enthusiasm comes from two folds. One, one is that, you know, this solves a problem for a real problem for the, the, the providers in that community. And not only that, you're able to earn the trust of the folks in that community, right, um, right. for the technology. So I think those co- two components um, have been pretty critical. Um, and, you know, the other parts, I think, uh, the other part I think is also important um, is really the long-term sustainability of the technology. So I think enthusiasm is great. Uh, over time, you want to bring more people into the fold in terms of you know people who are are that this technology is helping. And if there's not a strategy where this program can be can sustain itself long-term, then I think you kind of miss the mark a little bit. You miss an opportunity for this to do the 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 most good over a long period of time. Definitely. So developing in the context of where you want to deploy and the communities that you are hoping to impact and help should be deeply involved along the way. And do you have examples of how your team has been tackling some of these in particular? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, the local partnerships part has been pretty key. uh, And uh, I'll probably give an example of our work in Thailand, uh, where you know, we work with the national screening program there. Uh, the, the Dr. Paisan, who's the um, retina specialist who runs the screening program, uh, he's he's been a champion for the the work, uh, and also um, you know self critical as well, right? Like we really do want to measure how well the system works, uh, and so we've been uh, putting together studies uh, with uh, the team there as well um, to measure how well the system uh, is working, not just the system itself, but also within the entire ecosystem end-to-end uh, screening for the patients. So I think that's that's one of the things. Uh, in India, also um, having uh, eye hospitals um, and other folks really be the champion 
uh, for the work uh, has been pretty critical. Um, and then I, I, I think it's not just, you know, we, we do have a PI that obviously drives the study, but what we've noticed is that also the team that supports the entire project has been pretty critical. And so, um, you know, having the ophthalmic nurses be really involved in not just the screening, but also the design of the screening workflow has been very helpful because they, again, know, know the patients best, know the clinics best. And so we've been able to um, design things, you know, according to their feedback. And that's been the most fruitful type of collaboration where there is a lot of back and forth and there is a lot of um, ownership on both sides. So, and I think the last part we're trying to work on is, you know, what is the right incentives for adoption? Um, and, you know, you have to, build in the right incentives for the provider, but also for the patients. Um, and so a lot of patients, for example, you have to think about life more holistically. So while patients would love to get screened for a disease like, you know, breast cancer or, or you know, lung cancer or diabetic retinopathy, uh, well, they have loved ones that they have to take care of. And so mm-hmm. if a follow-up means that they forego, you know, another day of wages so that they can get potentially follow-up, that's going to be a really difficult ask versus, um, you know, getting their follow-up, you know, right then and there during the screening uh, process or really being able to send them knowing that they're at super high risk and really do need to do this versus they're kind of in the medium risk bucket and there's probably nothing wrong, but we're just trying to make sure that they're okay, right? That the cost of a follow-up appointment from the screening can be very high for certain patients, um, and it can be a huge barrier to entry. And so looking, uh, and by barrier to entry, I just mean like barrier to like just show up in the next appointment. Right. And so understanding the reason behind what you, we even call non-adherence has been um, very a, a very enlightening. And, and also, I think this will help us build a system that doesn't require patients to choose between taking care of their loved ones and getting care for themselves. Absolutely. Well, Lily, this has been as grounding as it has been insightful. Thank you so much again for taking the time to chat today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of The Data Pulse. If any of the terms used in today's conversation were foreign to you, feel free to check out the podcast glossary where I've included definitions and links to resources that my guests have shared. Be sure to tune in next week to once again get a sneak peek into the pulse of data-driven biomedicine.